This is God's word from Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 25. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you to pray with me. Our God of grace, as we come into this space together, we come from all kinds of different stories and backgrounds. And this week, we may have been hit with uh, news that was painful or difficult, um, things that make us aware of the brokenness around us or in our own hearts. We come into this room, we might resonate with the title messed up or we might recoil at it and feel far from such a reality. We might be coming here with lots of faith or coming here with lots of doubt and questions, wondering if this is even the right place for us to to be sitting on a Sunday morning. And as we come from all these different places, whether it's thankful or resentful, hurting or healed, we all come more of a mess than we care to admit, more than we want other people to know, more than we often even realize. And so we look to you, and we only have the courage to look to you with our mess because you've shown us over and over again in your story, in these pages, that you move towards broken people, that you not only move towards us and welcome us, so much more. You move towards us and you take on the mess and the burden of it yourself in order to bring us home. Would you show us how gracious you are today? Teach us through that grace and that love that comes towards messy, broken lives. And bring us each in our own way that we need it. Bring us each into that love and that grace so that we grasp it today and that it changes how we look at things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm really glad it's not a a campaign season, a political time. Preachers, it's it's dangerous for preachers to to bring up politics in a sermon during a campaign season because you lose all your listeners because you just kind of go to all those commercials and all those things that are making you mad. So it's an off-season, so I can, I can refer to it. Do you notice how on the ad, the campaign ads, the candidates, they all seem to settle on the same message over and over again, that I'm going to be the one that brings change? You ever get a little bit cynical about that? You know, this, I'm going to transform Washington. I'm going to transform Sacramento. Um, 
they settle on that same message over and over again. Change. I'm going to bring change. In my kids' school, they have a student council, and they have elections in the classroom, and the kids give a speech uh, saying why you should vote for them. They, they give the speech to their class, and it goes all the way down to second grade, which if you know children, that, to me, that seems odd. That's so young. Uh, second grade, you know, I picture these second, third, fourth, fifth graders, and I just think about my own views towards school at that point in life. And I picture over and over these candidates coming before their third grade uh, friends and saying, vote for me, you know, I'll be the one to put an end to this and we can all go home and play. You know? <laughs> Just over and over every year, you know. Um, I, I, think we, I think we're going to get it done this year. And, and I've got a plan, but you've got to vote for me and we all got to work together. Um, no, school is good. Stay in school. Stay in school. Um, but, but, you know, what, what are the kids going to change? What are they going to say they, they, they need to change when they're in third or fourth grade? Um, but that's the, that's the message. Why does that resonate with us in, po- in politics? Why do they settle on it? I think it's because there is. At every moment, every single one of us, all the time, we can look at something that we're feeling and experiencing and say, that is a problem, and that should change. It really is a common denominator that at every point, for all of us, there's something we can look at and go, that's messed up. That's, uh, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And we, we hear someone say, I'm going to bring change. And we say, okay, I'm all ears. Um, You've got to stop and wonder, why is that true? You know, if you're asking the big questions, and this, this month we're kind of doing big picture things, why, how, how is that possible that at all times, there may be different issues and problems that we see, but at all times there are these things that we say that's not the way it's supposed to be. Do you have a good working definition of what's wrong with our world? Do you have, or do you have a good working answer to the question, what's wrong? Have you thought about that? What's your operational answer to what's wrong with our world? And how does that inform how you start to live and how you start to maybe hope for change or look forward to things? And in the Bible, of course, um, it probably wouldn't surprise you that when we're talking about how things are messed up and what's wrong with the world, that we're, we're going to go back and, and consider the very beginning of the story, but not quite just at the beginning, just a few chapters in. So we come into Genesis chapter 3, and we deal with the fall of humanity. It's kind of interesting. The big picture of this month is um, creation and the fall, and then redemption, and then new creation, to put it in sort of the big theological terms. And the fall, creation is like Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and the fall is Genesis chapter 3, and then pretty much the whole rest of the Bible is redemption, the story of redemption playing out in a fallen world. And then it's new creation is what we look forward to. So we go back to Genesis 3. What's wrong with our world? Genesis 3 has a a unique answer. I I don't think it's the common answer that we find out in our world with the competing ideas that are out there. The answer is that um, it goes down to an incredibly deep level. I don't know if you can go deeper than saying that the the human heart is broken. There's something deep within all of us, the deepest part of us, that's wayward and broken. And so as the story goes, the, the tempter... The devil comes to uh, Adam and he says, 
is that really what God said? That's really important that that's how the temptation was. Because if you were here last week, you caught that the beginning of things, it all started with God saying something. And then his word had power, his word created, and everything was constantly upholding his word and carrying out his word automatically. His word went out and created this, and his word created that, and his word created this. And so Satan says, did he really say? And who's Satan talking to? But he's talking to Adam and Eve who have been described as the ones who now, on the, on the, the last day of the creating work of God, he made man and woman in his own image. And what are image bearers? But um, the best we can understand what that means is that God put us here, put Adam and Eve there in the midst of the world to constantly be upholding his word and carrying out his word. Image bearers, like a king putting his emissaries or a big statue of himself in a land that he's conquered, sort of agents of his rule. And that's what Adam and Eve were. And and Psalm 8 says this wonderfully when it says, you made them ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. They're the ones. They're the ones put there. Their purpose is to uphold the words and the speech of God. And so, did God really say that? And the temptation is to make God's words look kind of puny and constricted and um, shackled and not free. Come on, there's, there's something more free and liberating beyond God's words. And they fall. And they go... And, and, and this, is, this is the interesting thing, is that the way the Bible tells the story and what, we, what Karen just read is that all of creation falls with them. So uh, Romans 8 says it, that creation waits in eager expectation. Later on the word is that the whole creation is groaning, groaning. Waits in eager expectation. For the creation, verse 20, was subjected to frustration. And then in verse 21, that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Um, I just want to key in on this word, frustration. The creation is subject to frustration. The word there is matayote, and it deals with, part of the meaning I want to key in on with matayote is um, purposelessness. That's part of the meaning that word carries with it. The creation with Adam and Eve was subject, not just now Adam and Eve have lost their purpose, but creation as a whole has gone down this road to purposelessness. And that becomes the new shackles. Adam and Eve were tempted to think, oh, we're going to be free if we, if we get beyond God's puny words. But then they found themselves shackled. And their purposes, the very reason that they and everything else exists, gets kind of all perverted and haywire and going in every direction. And so we have this quote by this uh, theologian, Neil Plantinga, who says basically that sin is the turning of loyalty, energy, and desire away from God and God's project in the world. It is the diversion of construction materials for the city of God to side projects of our own, often accomplished, 
often accompanied by jerry-built ideologies that seek to justify the diversion. What's wrong with our world? What's, why is there always some problem we can look at and say, it shouldn't work like that? Because all of creation has fallen and gotten their purpose all mixed up and twisted. So that a pristine natural ecosystem becomes just a plot of land where some developers can rake in a bunch of dough and buy off some uh, officials to be able to do it. An official, uh, uh, an, an office job for the state, uh, state agency becomes a place to maybe work out your petty jealousies and issues and grievances rather than being a part of a helpful solution to some issue in society. Close friends, rather than being these uh, constant support of unconditional love, they become people to whom you can unload unhealthy gossip about other friends or would-be friends. Clothing and appearance and beauty, rather than becoming parts, small parts of creation in our lives that we enjoy, they can become things that we wrap up our entire identity around. And we judge ourselves and others, and we say, you either pass or you fail. I either pass or I fail, depending on how I feel about how I look. It just, you just go on and on and on about the way that things, their purpose has been twisted. Where sex becomes something where I get rather than I give. Or it becomes something where um, it's about me being free and pursuing what I feel like I need and want right now. And I need to be free with no limits rather than the safety of a vulnerable one-on-one -on -one marriage relationship. Everything, you can just keep going down the list. How everything you can look at. Try it on this week. Try on that sort of definition of what's wrong with the world. Everything has been purposelessness, has been given over and imprisoned to purposelessness. You notice in Romans 8 that the verbiage, that the language that starts to develop here has this intense focus on creation in this, in this text. Maybe you noticed. But the language is about being subjected and in bondage and in need of being liberated. I want to use the word imprisoned. We are imprisoned to purposelessness. I've never, uh, I've never been, even for a few minutes, um, put in a jail or a prison, but in visiting at the county jail, it's a stunning experience just to walk through the doors of a place of confinement. So, you know, you go in and you walk in and it's just an intense place and the guards are not people who are we're there to say, oh, thank you for coming. So glad you're here. Have a seat. Would you like something to drink? It's not that kind of place at the jail. Some of you have been there. And you walk in, and you can't help but start to, at least I can't help, but when I've been there, I start to imagine, what does this feel like when you're really, you're really going here? Like, you have to stay here. And you're ushered in, down hallways, and you go through doors that lock behind you and you can't just open those doors and now you're in what's that like what's it like to come in and you know be your take those clothes off and put these generic ones on that's now who you are there goes that sense of purpose and 
here's your number instead of your name, and here's your cell. And what's it like to have the cell click behind you? Clank. And now what? Five years, 10 years, 15 years, whatever the sentence is, 20, 40, life? What's that like? You know, there's psych psychological journals um, with articles and studies done on what prison does to a human's purpose in life, sense of purpose, and how that kind of screws us up. I imagine sitting there on that bed and just thinking, just, you know, just sitting there. Now what? And every day, you know, you can go down the hall to the rec yard maybe, or maybe you, you go down a couple times a day to get food. Why? To eat so that you can come back and sit on that bed. Your eyes get a little, get a little sleepy at night. Your eyes start to close. Why? Why rest? Why am I going to sleep? So that I can wake up and do it all again tomorrow? Do a whole lot of nothing in a windowless room with none of my people. All, any sense of what life was about, what I wanted it to be, what purpose, out the window. I don't know if you can feel that. I, I mean, for me, it's like I, just being there, it all comes back, that intense burden and weight of all, every, with every door that would shut, that your purpose would be out the window. In life, <clears throat> a lot of times you're going to be dealing with general purposelessness, and you're going to be puzzling over it, right? And saying, how could this happen? You're going to deal with the fact and the, and the emotions of responding to news stories where the purpose of things has gone all out of whack and three women are abducted and kept for 10 years and you hear about it and you just go, why? What's wrong with our world? Or bombings at a marathon event and you go, why? What's wrong with our world? And you'll have all kinds of times, we have all kinds of times where we struggle with this on a general level of purposelessness. But there's going to be times in your life, uh, maybe they've been recent, maybe they're now, maybe they're long in your future, but they will come. And these times are when you struggle with purposelessness on a very personal level. And it will feel like you're sitting on that bed and like the gates have locked all around you. And there's three or four security barriers. And you sit there and you look at your life and you'll say, God, where are you? I want to suggest that if you ever get to that place, that you be very aware of the fact that you might be closer to understanding what it means than you ever have before when someone says there is a God who is gracious. I think that it goes a little bit like this. If you have a small view of how messed up you are, then you're only going to have a very small need for God and a very small sense of what it means that God loves you. If, you know, if your view is, I need to go in for a tune-up once in a while, I need to tweak the, you know, just change a, a couple of degrees, or I, I need God's help in just turning the direction of my good intentions a tiny bit here or there, your experience of God will often feel very vacant and, and small. But if you have a deep sense of how, how messed up of a situation you are in. If you, in a sense like this passage, if you groaned, 
if you're in a place of groaning or you have experience of groaning with the wrongness of your life and of this world, the more you've groaned, the more you'll appreciate and understand, the more likely you're going to have a vibrant, captivating experience of God's grace. The more you have a sense of your deep need for God, the more you're going to appreciate and understand how far he's reached out to grab hold of you. In many ways, what we need is to groan in this world and honestly groan along with the things that we're going through, the pain that you're going through. Groan out loud, expressively with the pain you meet, with unmet expectations of parents or children or your career. Groan in the midst of getting stabbed in the back at work. Groan in the midst of the sorrow of infertility or miscarriage or loss or unmet expectations to meet someone who would complete you. Groan. Groan at anything, whether maybe it's a persisting resentment that you have or some persistent sense of regret that you have. Groan at the wrongness of this world. And if you're a, someone who's a Christian and you say, I don't know, I feel kind of far from that concept. This feels sort of negative, Mark. Uh, back off a little bit. I don't want to go there. Um, well, you know, we've got, to deal with the, we've got to deal with the fall and the messed up Sunday. It has to come in this series. I'm sorry. But if there's a sense in which you say, I, I'm far from that groaning. What are, you, what are you talking about? My suggestion would be stop running away from the needs of others and groan with others. Get in the ditch. Open up your life. There's ways, subtle ways that you have doors closed, maybe in some intentionally, some unintentionally, but doors closed to the pain and the groaning of those around you. What might it mean this week when you get close to someone else's groaning at the wrongness of this life that you're a little bit more sensitive and awake to it and you actually say, tell me about that, instead of moving on to small talk. Let's meet up and talk. Can I do anything? Uh, do you need someone to hang out with? As the groaning of this world, it's everywhere. It's a, it, uh, open your eyes to it. Your neighbors are in places where they're groaning. Your coworkers are in places where they're groaning. Your people in your small group in your community pot are in places where they're groaning. Get in the ditch. Jesus did. There's this interesting story in Matthew or in Mark chapter seven where Jesus heals someone who's um, can't hear and can't speak. And talk about lost purpose. If you go back to that sense of our purpose in Genesis to carry out and uphold God's speech and his word, this is someone who can't hear or speak. How do you carry out, how do you even hear God's word, let alone carry it out? So there's some symbolism here in a sense. And Jesus comes in Matthew 7, or Mark 7 to heal this person. And this is what he says as he approaches. Uh, he's about to heal this person. Matthew 7, verse 34, he looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh, he said, be opened. Well, maybe you guessed it, that the word there for sigh is the same word in Romans 8 for groaning. Jesus enters into the groaning completely in order to heal and restore you and me to our purpose in life, to purposefulness. And if you think about Jesus that way, it's interesting. 
Because you look at our, store, our passage in Romans 8 and verse 20, it talks about being, creation being subjected to frustration or purposelessness, as I've talked about it. And verse 21 talks about the bondage to decay. You know what Jesus did at the beginning of his life? He entered into the bondage of decay. And at the end of his life, he ended by entering into the subject to frustration. He did both of those things utterly and completely. When Jesus was born, he, this is the God of the universe taking on a body that's going to deteriorate over time. And when he got, came to the end of his life, he allowed himself to be shackled, led by guards to his trial and his execution. Talk about pointlessness, or purposelessness and frustration. Jesus entered into all of the groaning, all of the pain. Even literally, we see that in Mark chapter 7 when he does his healing. And you can be sure, you can be sure that God didn't do all of that for you and me just, just because you need a little advice and teaching. You went through all of that just because... You need a little nudge in the right direction with some of your good intentions. Or that you, he wants you to have a few more of the things in life that you want. I think you, we're looking at big questions and we're looking at grappling with those questions. And to grapple with the Christian faith really means to over and over again come up to this question. Am I really believing and catching the gravity of this? Do I really believe in the gravity of what this is saying, what this story says? Am I comprehending the weightiness of this, the extensiveness of this? That our problem is so bad that the God of the universe had to come and undergo all of that suffering that was seen as the only solution? Is our world that bad? That's the first part to, to keep grappling with over and over again. But the second part, does God love you and me so much that he actually went through with it? To actually believe the gravity of that and the weightiness of that. Because if, if you do, there's really only one, you know, there's really only two options. And the one is to say, I, no, forget it, I don't believe any of that. That's just... That's too amazing and incredible and beyond me. That can't be how it works. And the other is to say, I'm going to give myself wholly and fully to that God who gave himself wholly and fully to restore me to my purpose. And then the church of those who follow that God and follow that Jesus who groaned with us, this church can become a place, as our passage suggested a little bit, where some of the first fruits of the Spirit begin to be seen. Let me put the, that a different way, that phrase, first fruits of the Spirit. Just put it another way. God's Spirit, through Jesus, returning you to your original purpose. Church is a place, the Christian faith and the Christian community is a place where you get little pictures and little experiences of people being freed up from the bondage of purposelessness and returned to their original purpose, our creational purpose. You see examples of that. You see tangible ways in which people say, I found the, maybe you've heard this phrase, I found freedom in Christ. I've experienced some liberation through the gospel 
that I'm more of a mess than I care to admit, but God loves me more than I ever imagined. And I now know that. I know how messed up I am, so I know how much God has reached. And I know how valuable that is. And I am starting to live as if that's true. There are ways in which things that held me in bondage and held me just, just tight in their shackles before, it's only the love of God and his grace through Jesus that starts to break them open and return me to how I knew that there was a better way to live and now I'm getting taste of it. Have you tasted it? If it sounds good to you, uh, do whatever you can in your life to attach yourself more and more to the gospel of Jesus, to praying to this God, to holding on to this Jesus and what he's done for you. A lot of times, what if you wonder, you've seen announcements about dive, this group called Dive that we have. Or maybe you see people come up for prayer after the service. A lot of times what's going on there is this exact work of people being restored in the experience of the depth of their groaning and their need and their own stories being returned to what God had in mind for them originally through the grace of Jesus. Will you pray with me? God, I pray that you be lavish in providing the um, experiences of your grace at City Life Church and in our lives. Walk with us and help us on this day and always, every day, whether we're exploring this and it feels so new to us and we have no idea what this is all about. It's so far from us. Or whether we, um, we are so intrigued and captivated by the idea of your grace this morning and we want more. Would you walk with us closely? And even through this time in a few moments when we consider what uh, communion and the Lord's Supper says to us about your grace, would you join us in anoint that time as well as a time to meet with you and know how much you have given up for really broken people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.